Hello, and welcome to the Consumer VC Podcast, where we discuss the intersection of venture capital and consumer innovation. I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and if you're enjoying the show, you can subscribe to my newsletter where you'll receive every new episode a week early. Head to theconsumervc.com and click subscribe. All content and episodes are for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not investment advice. I want to thank Anna Whiteman for introducing me to our guest today, Sarah Foley. Sarah is a partner at SWAT Equity. SWAT Equity invests in high-growth consumer brands that are disrupting their categories with a differentiated product, service, or technology. Some of their investments include Supergoop, Bonza, and Mad Rabbit. We discuss why invest in consumer today, the difference between consumer and tech from a portfolio and return standpoint, macro trends she's bullish and bearish on, and what are the signs a company is actually breaking through the noise. Without further ado, here's Sarah. Sarah, thank you so much for joining me here today. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. It's so good to see you, Mike. I'm so glad to do this. You uh, have an amazing following. I'm honored to be on. Let's start from the top. What was your initial attraction to investing and why, why consumer? Why, what about consumer brands made it appealing to you? Why did the fickleness of consumer lead me to believe that it would be a great investing category? <laughs> <laughs> That's a much um, better way to phrase the question, no. indeed. <laughs> So I would answer that maybe a, a couple of ways. The first way is I'm just a business model voyeur by nature, which I guess I've honed over the course of my career, which has been longer than I care to admit, investing in companies. And not only in the early stages, kind of where I sit today at SWAT Equity, investing in early stage consumer brands, but really across the entire capital stack, if you will, angel investing personally for long periods of time, even actually doing that in Broadway productions, which is a different version of venture capital, wow. uh, through to the more traditional private equity leveraged buyout style of making investments. But it's uh, always just been a huge curiosity and fascination to understand how companies make money. Um, and what I love about consumer is just the tangibility of it. You know, we get to talk about the products and even the services that one can go experience, the experiences themselves around consuming brands, uh, which is a lot easier for me to talk about than how this particular enterprise level software solution is utilized by a big corporate Fortune 500 company. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was talking to, uh, a guy who'd built a um, incredible consumer brand. And he, he he actually came from the software side originally and was an early employee at, you know, a, 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 a pretty big software company now. And he was saying how building a consumer though, like even just, just going to a dinner party or something, it's so <laughs> much more interesting and fun talking about, you know, building a consumer brand than it is like talk about like enterprise SaaS or, or something like that. So yeah. um, totally agree with you there why um so i know I, I know you mentioned that you know you've you've kind of been in um all the different kind of facets on uh, when it comes to capital sack why what attracted you specifically about um a, a, attracted to early stage and, and what's kind of the founding story of of swat two great questions um maybe i'll start in reverse so founding story of swat is a fun one it's actually the brainchild of my two other partners named Mark Hauser and Rick Kirschenbaum. They come from opposite ends of the experience spectrum. 
So Mark uh, has been a lifelong kind of professional investor in various companies, uh, privately owned, entrepreneurially owned, family owned for a while. Uh, uh, he's cut his teeth kind of helping those businesses capitalize for growth, capitalize for succession change, capitalize for different reasons, and helping that management team and those business owners really achieve next chapters of growth. Uh, but they're more mature. They're generally um, cash flowing. They have that fun EBITDA number that is a positive one, not a negative one, like I tend to look at now in venture. Uh, but he's just been a really great investor and uh, advisor to those businesses for a long time. He's had a close friend and still remains a close friend named Richard Kirschenbaum. Richard does not come from the investing side at all. In fact, quite the opposite. He uh, has spent his entire career uh, in the branding, advertising, and marketing creative world, um, helping companies name their brand, build a brand, rebuild a brand. Uh, what he's really good at is the instinct and gut around, does this particular company have the right assets digitally, analog, or otherwise to help convey really differentiation around why that particular product of that company or that service is different uh, from another and making sure that that messaging is getting across to the intended customer, whether it's consumer or business to business or otherwise. So the combination of those two skill sets, uh, they thought would be interesting and could be more uniquely applied to what was at the time, and I still think is a nascent space of investing in earlier stage consumer companies that required capital for growth. More traditionally kind of thought of as venture capital because they're young, they're growing, they aren't cash flow positive yet, uh, but we all call it kind of really early stage growth equity investing. Uh, our focus is seed and series A when we get technical about you know what stages we like to get involved. Um, and that generally means that the business has been um, in the market, they've launched their product and or service is, you know, and being consumed by a small set of initial con customers. And they're looking at ways to grow, scale and uh, continue to build out that customer segment. How do you think about I I appreciate you, uh, you mentioning like the, the proposition of of SWAT, which was taking, you know, Mark's background from investing and um, an expertise from in that world and also Richard's uh, expertise when it came to the brand building side and kind of having that come together to become SWAT. Um, I also thought you said something really interesting as well about um, how since it's early stage in consumer, a lot of it's called venture capital, but really how you think about it, it's early, um, early kind of growth equity. Um, yeah. investing. Wow. What's the difference between venture capital and 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 and, and how you're seeing it um, in the way that you invest um, in consumer? Well, I think I don't know if um, the founder community views us any differently than an early stage, you know, what's called venture capital investor. Um, my background is another compliment, I think, to both Mark's and Richard's lenses, if you will, to how we approach sourcing and diligence. And that is a, a healthy mix of good old fashioned um, private equity rigor that's associated to the process of how 
we sourced and really diligenced and structured, quite frankly, investments in bigger, more mature businesses to protect for kind of some downside risk, but also allow for plenty of upside potential. Um, but I've spent a lot of my career now in the venture capital community as well and figuring out the nuances there, the tools of the trade, if you will, and the, top, the ways in which we can invest. Um, and quite frankly, learning how to get more and more comfortable taking risk on businesses that we don't have as much information as my private equity days would otherwise provide um, and the knowledge that we're going to be, you know, involved in helping these companies playing coach a lot, um, listening to and building those relationships with founders to help them become more and more confident about the decisions that they're making to scale the businesses. Um, so the difference between, you know, what I would call a classic venture capital approach and the way we think about building and constructing our portfolio is we are a hybrid. Uh, we are not taking what I might kind of term traditional early stage venture capital and making a lot of small investments because the risk is high and the stage is early. What we also aren't doing is putting capital into 10 companies, kind of a more pro, you know, private equity or growth equity approach because we're still early in the business's cycle and there's plenty of risk left. So we're kind of going for that 25-ish company approach, not 10, not 40, but something in the middle that enables us to write a bit larger check, play a little bit more of on our strengths of rigor from private equity training and build and foster with more conviction relationships in our portfolio company help them find next funding round, help them find next leaders of those rounds, start thinking about both paths of profitability, key, critical. It's not something they have to, they can leave behind until the C round or the D round. Um, path profitability and ways in which to think about, you know, potential exits. And again, in our world, it's not going to be by IPO. We fully expect most of our, most of our exits are going to come from in the form of, either a private equity ownership stage of the business or directly into a strategic's hands. That's really helpful. So not, as you say, like in, in some ways, it's kind of like this kind of hybrid, not super concentrated where you have, you know, 10 companies. Um, also at the same time, it's not kind of uh, spray and pray, even though I don't love that language, but kind of spray and pray right. where you have like invest maybe like 50 or, or, or 75 companies. It's kind of this middle ground of, yeah. of 25 companies. How do you think about your return pro, uh, uh, profile when you actually make the investment? What's like the ideal scenario? We try to underwrite when we make our initial investment mm -hmm. at a seed or a series day stage company to, you know, somewhere-ish between 10 and 20 times our original investment in that company. So we need to see a path to making 20 times our investment in that company um, at the initial point of entry, uh, it's like 20 times multiple if it's seed stage. That's helpful. So, That's helpful. I mean, it puts a lot of emphasis on how much we're putting in and valuation, obviously, that we begin our investment kind of period with them. Um, and what we think is going on in the next five years-ish in terms of strategic appetite and valuations. How, how also do you think about so it's investing in, you know, 25 companies each with when you when you underwrite, you 
you need um, you need you need to feel confident that that yeah. you could get a ten to twenty x uh, return. What do you think about the overall distribution um, should be? Because I'm thinking about also kind of comparing you know consumer to maybe you know maybe traditional ca- sure. venture capital, which is very kind of power law esque um, yeah. type distribution curve. How do you think about the overall distribution curve when it comes to you know your portfolio or what the what an optimal optimal por- portfolio w- will become? Uh, it's such a great question. It's become a fun topic of conversation too with just you know you and I and certainly others in the ecosystem of venture overall and as well as kind of the consumer crowd of investors. Uh, so my and I, I guess I would say our thesis at SWAT Equity is that we will have a lower loss ratio of portfolio companies. So we don't expect, you know, 10% of the portfolio to generate our overall targeted return of call it three to five times. Um, we expect there will be more um, doubles, triples, and higher across the portfolio that net us down to that kind of three to five net return multiple of invested capital. Um, I feel that there should be, there's lower upfront cost kind of to get a consumer brand off the ground. There's lower entry point on valuations at seed and series A than, than higher tech and life science and other categories of more traditional venture capital that also require more upfront money. So that's going to push kind of valuation up as well. And they expect a much higher return and can go public and, you know, become bigger unicorn to decacorn. So we think of it as, even though it's riskier and it's venture, we believe our thesis is that a portfolio will have um, just a lower loss ratio, enabling us to still generate that three to five times net return number off of 25 companies. I yeah, no, that, yeah, 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 that, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. So you have um, kind of more companies that are kind of hitting maybe more doubles, triples, and beyond. Um, less companies that are actually failing or actually going right. to zero. That's um, right. And so it's maybe more like evenly per se um, distribution curve, which is also in line with what you said about how it's kind of early stage private equity because that's, that's much more kind of private equity um, world than it is like traditional than traditional because I think it's I think it's interesting because I feel like sometimes consumer venture capital maybe shouldn't be called venture capital because for these reasons because I think that we ultimately I think if you're trying to build a traditional in kind of the traditional mythology of what venture capital is then it's easy to say oh well don't invest in consumer brands that will never work and like and it, and you know it probably won't work because you say like the exits aren't tend to not be, you know, IPOs. Um, right. They tend not to be these, you know, um, magnificent, you know, billion uh, billion dollar exits. Um, but that doesn't mean you can't build an incredible portfolio and do extremely well investing in consumer. It's just a different type of beast. So it is, and it's a different type of 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 business than uh, what it takes to successfully scale a SaaS company. Mm-hmm. Um, in, indeed, I mean, we're sitting around the table talking about channels of distribution metrics therein, and how you grow revenue with a fast moving kind of consumer packaged good, um, that 
has low barriers to entry to get the business up and running. You know, you have a co-manufacturer. You can start with an e-commerce channel. You can do your own marketing on social channels. Um, that's it's a it's very much a different business model than figuring out what the cost is of getting the minimum viable kind of product up and running with engineering talent in a software solution world and then the process of going through the sales cycle of finding the initial adopters the second level adopters and how long that takes how big now those are great businesses too and they're in fact, yeah. probably stickier um, and just carry different valuations. But we can generally get into a business uh, in terms of the valuation entry point for us that's between like 10 and $20 million. So for us to see 10 times, you know, return on that investment in the company, you know, if you do the math, it's kind of a 100 to 200, $250 million sized exit valuation, which is completely reasonable in our world. Yeah, no, that's a great point. That's a great point. And also, at the same time, when you're investing at the seed series, hey, there's just there's a lot more data as well. These are you yeah. know, products that are, you know, um, I'm sure post launch, right. um, for sure, unless it's, you know, maybe very specific, like food tech, or, you know, there is like a lot of IP that's associated uh, with the actual product itself. But for, you know, high growth brands, um, kind of in that lane, Definitely, you know, post-launch, so you have a lot more data to kind of collect and, and think about. Um, I know one of the things you said as well that 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 um, that was interesting too is that when you invest, there has to be a clear path to profitability. When you're diligencing a, co- <laughs> diligencing a company and you're evaluating companies, how do you think about this question if there's a path to profitability? And maybe what are some of, some of the mistakes that you maybe see entrepreneurs might do um, that you're talking to at your stage um, that maybe uh, might, might not lead to profitability long-term? Ooh, there's a lot in there to unpack because it's such a great question. Um, path to profitability. We don't expect at the stage at which we invest company to be profitable on the EBITDA or kind of below contribution margin, below gross margin line, below kind of all the G&A. They're at that, at that point in their little life's beginnings of life cycle here where they're investing ahead of uh, profitability for growth. Um, but that path to what, at what revenue level do we want to hit where we know we could be break even to start being profitable so that basically we have more options available to us than relying on the kind of venture capital community, which is looking for, a lot of growth to drive increased valuations on the next round of capital. That's it can get into a pretty tight spot and tough situation to be in. If for whatever reason growth slows for some very good reasons and maybe not some good reasons. So we want, when we kind of look at our diligence process, um, we think about not just kind of, the overall market opportunity in the form of TAM, we are actually digging into what are the unit economics on this product, for example. What are the retailer channel economics? So what is it going to cost the company to launch on Amazon? What might it cost the company to launch in wholesale in the conventional grocery channel? Uh, And then we'll look at particular account profitability too. 
because if those numbers are too low to begin with, you know, as well as I, that it's hard to kind of pull yourself back out of a low margin product line, account, channel, etc. It takes time. So if they're not starting from a pretty strong place of unit economics, profit, you know, uh, account, econ- account, account, profitability, they don't have a long hope. It's just not a sustainable kind of position to be in to keep scaling. Um, so mistakes that I see made kind of often are a rush to open a channel, open it in an account within that channel that doesn't have the proper support kind of factored in, modeled in, um, kind of contracted in with a particular retailer, for example, um, with respect to how often you have to promote, how often you have to provide kind of couponing support, how often you're contributing to an ad spend bucket of the overall retailer. I mean, there are a lot of little nicks at the profitability kind of chip that come along the way and they can add up. And for a small brand with no leverage, that becomes challenging to withstand. And then you get into the, you know, situation of it's not working. So we're going to exit that account. And optically that can be difficult um, for the brand as they kind of continue to build relationships with other retailers. So we want to help educate, uh, to help think through all of those decisions by just applying some learnings that we've developed over the, you know, our, the course of our kind of careers as well as portfolio building to the founders in our portfolio as they're taking on these decisions. Um, we recognize we don't have control over those decisions. As a venture capital investor, that's the other learning I've had to transition through is I don't have economic control. So all I can do is build a good relationship built, you know, based on trust and integrity with these founders to make sure they know they need, they are welcome to call to gather input from me. I'm, I'm going to provide some suggestions. I want to be involved in understanding some of that detail, but I'm not making the final decision. They just need to keep pushing on getting to the right answer uh, as they start opening up more of accounts and more of these channels. But if you don't kind of have an eye toward profitability, you know, in the longer run and set your sights on, can I be a $20 million sized revenue business in e-com, Amazon, and a channel of brick and mortar retail and make and be break even? And I'm kind of picking 20. I don't know if that's the right answer for any particular, you know, company in a different category within consumer. But if they don't apply their vision for the business with this lens, it's not the only one, but with this lens in mind, they're going to be on that tough treadmill of constantly dripping capital into the business in order to find profitability. And it's just not a long-term sustainable answer. And they'll have fewer and fewer options available to them as they continue to grow. It's a no, long-winded I, answer, but there's so much going on. No, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. And we've, we've heard, you know, I, I, I just came out of doing a, I did a panel in, um, Austin last week. With, yeah, uh, yeah, it looked like it was sold with, out with three funders. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It, it it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. But um, but, but one of the funders said that there has been a kind of a shift towards VCs. That there's been a um, a um, or you know early growth equity investors. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> that um, that uh, that a focus from you know 
how much are you, how much does it cost to kind of acquire a customer versus how much it, versus the actual retention on those customers yeah. and looking through like the those um uh through those cohorts because then if you're able to retain and and focus on retention then you know can you build as you say like a 20 million dollar break even business when you don't have to continuously um continuously focus on acquiring and acquiring and acquiring more and more customers per se um so um no that makes that makes a lot of sense um how do you also like analyze um certain categories that you might be interested in and do you ever get the feel if there's one that you think is maybe too niche that is all going to say niche or um or, or or maybe are there early signs that one could be you know break out and to be more you know conventional um and mass market or kind of how do you, how do you think about kind of these things when an entrepreneur approaches you with with their business uh another great question um you know and this is one of the i think our biggest challenges investing in this category is because the barriers to entry are low, there's mm-hmm. so much noise. Yeah. Uh, and so for us, the, as you know, time is your most precious resource, figuring out how best to filter our funnel of opportunity is a constant evolution of thinking. <laughs> there are plenty of like basic tenants that apply, but you know, we are following consumer trends and those trends uh, move at different paces. And so we aren't so specialized that we focus only on one category. We do like to have that kind of diversification in our portfolio across a variety of consumer categories. So we have to look at a variety of those consumer categories. I think the two things that we use to filter on most have nothing to do with quantitative metrics, actually. I mean, yes, we wow. like to see something that has a million of revenue or more because we want some initial traction. But there are two things I think that we use as an overall um, filter. Uh, one of them is, is the customer this particular brand is targeting? Un- how underserved are they? So what? where is their friction point that this particular product or service is offering to solve and how much of a pain point is that how underserved are they and i I can talk about a couple of examples but that's one like large swath of of filtering um an example would be um womaness a relatively recent addition to our portfolio it's in the beauty and wellness categories but they are products designed and marketed to women going through peri and menopause symptoms. So they are likely more Gen X right now in age profile. Um, but what we loved about their approach that Sally and Michelle, the founders of Womanist are taking, is they're developing a brand umbrella to the various products, uh, skincare, supplements, and feminine kind of care that can be embraced quite frankly with positivity in fact that's one of their taglines is menopositivity around this hugely stigmatized kind of period in a woman's life so we just felt the market opportunity is massive with so many kind of women going through this phase in their life around the world Um, and there's no one brand that kind of speaks to with one brand kind of message uh, all of the types of products that could be used here Um, 
so we felt that she was pretty underserved and therefore we'll look for kind of today more solutions to their problem. And then her millennial sisters are certainly going to be asking for a more specific kind of design for them approach to this kind of age challenge. Another example is Mad Rabbit. It's another kind of skincare brand, but their underserved customer focuses people with tattoos. And so as you make this investment and some of it's significant in putting art uh, that you are very passionate about on your body in the form of ink, how do you then take care of that tattoo? And what that team has developed is kind of a tattoo-safe formulation of skincare products that help protect, preserve, and kind of make that tattoo feel more resilient and brilliant over the kind of course of life than if you didn't do anything. Um, and 46% of U.S. adults, we believe, uh, have one or more tattoos. So it's a big audience that's still not really been spoken to. They've been underserved in, in terms of like products that are available to them for their specific wants and needs. Um, so that's a big way in which we filter. Uh, the second one I mentioned is differentiation. And again, in a world of low barriers to entry in developing and launching a consumer brand, of product particularly, how, what is this team doing? It relates to kind of how this underserved customer's needs are getting met, but how are they conveying the messaging? How well is the branding kind of structured to catch the eye, literally and figuratively? It doesn't need to be perfect when we make our investment, but we do, because of our kind of background and expertise in branding and marketing, have a lens of strength there that we can really dig into. How well do we think their messaging is a room for improvement? Do they want to improve? Uh, and are they really differentiated in their kind of product or service offering than the other many things that could be on the shelf that the customer is looking at? I, I really appreciate this kind of in-depth that you have that you brought to the table um, with you know, Mad Rabbit and also Womanness. That's amazing. Um, and also self-serving, certainly on my portfolio's perspective. <laughs> but, you no, know, no, 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 it's great. It's great. <laughs> and also I think about uh, differentiation. I think you also brought up a really good point in that um, with consumer brands, it's really hard to break through the noise because there really isn't as much, you know, kind of upfront cost on the distribution side, right? Maybe they have a very differentiated product. Maybe they are serving an underserved customer, but how do you know, if it's actually working and actually the, the company's actually able to kind of break through the noise, are there kind of a couple metrics that maybe stick out that, that you like to, to look at, or it could be, you know, feedback or, 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 or what have you. We'd just love to kind of hear. Um, you know, we don't have a fully baked kind of formula, but drawing comparison across the portfolio is one way we kind of hit it. Um, when, when a brand we Best and has a substantial channel of uh, e-commerce revenue in, the, in terms of revenue streams. One of the ways we try to evaluate that uh, is through retention, returning customer purchase rate. Um, doesn't just have to be about subscription because that's one marketing tactic in my mind of generating revenue that's stickier um, and not necessarily you know, the long-term answer. It's not everything that you buy needs to be on a subscription. <laughs> it's subscribe and save. I mean, it's just kind of a, it's promotional kind of stunt in some cases. But looking at 
um, depending on category, how customers are returning to the e-commerce site to buy more product is one way. We look at a lot of reviews and we look at them across as many channels as we can get access to. Obviously, their own e-commerce site, their Amazon site, um, going to other kind of customer review platforms to see is another way we think about it. It gets harder, obviously, as you get more omni-channel and you start building out distribution in brick and mortar. Uh, there you don't get traffic count and you don't get that Sarah went back to Ulta to buy more women's product, you know, three weeks after buying her first one. Um, so attribution in some ways around what do you do to play off the shelf space uh, and kind of bring people online is an area of discovery that we kind of like to go through, um, but don't have a minimum kind of hurdle set for what you have to, what, what a company needs to be doing. No, that's helpful. And I, I think it's also interesting to hear how you think about the kind of relationship between online sales and also sales, you know, um, in person where, you know, yeah. brick and mortar, um, a wholesale business, it's really hard to know what types of customers you, you have a, a, a genuine idea dependent on um, which retail channels that you're going through. But at the same time, you don't have, you know, um, a lot more information that you can gather from going online. How do you think overall, um, if a company is expanding from um, a, you know, their e-commerce business, they maybe have a very strong e-commerce business to retail, how should they think about that overall process of going omni-channel? Well, I think it's critical um, in most cases, uh, because I do still believe that the consumer is purchasing products 80% of the time in a brick and mortar type of retailer, right? So you have to have a presence in some fashion in some wholesale type of channel. And that, that type of channel is going to be dependent on what type of product and, you know, and, and category you're in, but it serves two purposes. Obviously it's a sales revenue generator, but it's also brand awareness. And that accounts, you know, that's, there's an attribution to brand awareness either. Um, but having more people find and discover you and then move to their preferred channel of consumption is, is really important. Uh, but just the numbers tell you, you've got to have some presence outside of digital um, in order to really scale a brand. More importantly, demonstrate to the next owner of said brand that you have real brand equity, which is what we're playing for, right? At the end of the day, it's right. that intangible on the balance sheet that continues to grow and grow and grow um, as the brand becomes more and more visible, viable, etc. So... But that's all easily said, and you're an operator, founder, kind of running a business, and it's overwhelming to just manage your e-commerce and then maybe start to manage an Amazon channel, which I believe is key in almost table stakes now. How do you crack into brick and mortar? Uh, I think three years ago, I probably would have answered a little differently than I would today, given the kind of supply chain distribution difficulties and challenges the pandemic has presented a lot of our favorite retailers they're still going through it and it's still not over um but i wouldn't recommend each brand knock on the biggest retailer in that you know call, channel call it mass or drug or grocery and say please take my product you have no leverage you won't get any support 
you get one shot for the most part at putting product on a shelf and hoping that you get the velocities they expect, or at least you start you, you and it, and you want to exceed them, right? To stay on the shelf and gain more shelf space. That is the game. So what we talk to our portfolio about now, those you know, those that are in the process of starting to think through their brick and mortar retail strategy is come up with another innovative kind of creative solution to, to testing. Don't go with the A quality kind of retailer accounts. Think maybe more regionally. You know, if you've got concentration of customers that you can see online that are in the South or in the Southwest or in the Pacific Northwest, find a good regional partner, um, figure out what the channel that's appropriate, um, you know, grocery, drug, beauty, specialty, whatever it may be, and approach them because they're likely not approached that often. They will hopefully pay more attention to you and you can start testing in a way that doesn't require you to build the inventory the team internal kind of resources and marketing dollars to support a launch in Target, to just use Target as an example, across thousands of doors, you know, hundreds to thousands of doors. It's a massive investment and commitment, and you don't know if it will work. Um, it takes time. It takes time to kind of build great relationships with these big retailers that are moving a lot of volume. So I think at the moment I would rely less on that playbook and flip a new page and come up with a different strategy that can differentiate you. So go an inch wide, you know, a foot deep instead of going a foot wide and maybe an inch deep per se. Um, yeah, maybe, but you know, be a bit, like be strategic about it and understand where your customers today shopping, um, where they're located, and you know. For example, Sticks in our portfolio is a great women's health brand that's got great products that you would normally kind of find in the drugstore. But they have a pretty big presence with college-aged um, consumers. So is there a different idea there to go figure out what that distributor is doing on college campuses to populate that store and give access to all, you know, more students who are going to be bigger consumers of their product um, instead of just asking CVS, can we go into 4,500 of your doors? Yeah, no, I mean, that's a great, that's a great, um, that's a great example um, just in terms of what you actually um, could be doing. And, and, I, and I also just appreciate that of focus on the actual regional side rather than trying to maybe uh, try to go national throughout the gate and yeah. focus on testing and seeing what what you know how to actually increase velocities regionally um, and actually what's working versus what's not working before you maybe go out and do an, uh, a national campaign. So that's um, that's really helpful. Um, I know, like, what is after you make an investment? Um, and I know that you know you kind of have a wide range in terms of, um, and maybe you you'll say it depends. Um, debate on the company, but, um, as you say, like maybe the goal, which is, you know, a very strong return is maybe having an exit of maybe like 250 million, for example, or somewhere in that ballpark, it's not, you know, going to be an IPO, um, or going to be maybe a billion dollar, um, transaction. Um, when, when a company takes money from SWAT, 
is it the goal that they fundraise again and that or is it or and 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 you know they kind of keep you know having um venture capital dollars private equity dollars kind of in part of their uh their um their capital stack or is or is the goal that this might be actually like the last time that you're actually going to fundraise um from us like how do you think about that in terms of and 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 how um founders maybe should should be thinking about their their cap table if if they are a uh consumer brand so i remember we kind of our initial investment is typically happening at that seed or series a stage uh so it's on the earlier side no is the answer on do I think we're the last capital in? Definitely not. Um, I fully expect them to raise two to three more rounds. Before more options are kind of available to the company in the form of less VC-minded, I would say, um, investors, more, call it mature thinking, meaning the business has matured they're profitable, they may be more appealing to a growth equity or even private equity kind of um, return profile investor, if not the strategic. The That's why this path to profitability conversation is so critical, because once you have profitability uh, at the business, um, more options open up in terms of financing for you, including non-dilutive capital mm-hmm. in the form of debt. Um, now, I don't recommend just in you know, you know, taking only debt on because it comes with some um, hooks as well as it should. But it's non-dilutive, and that's not unimportant to a company founders that have raised kind of a few rounds of capital, and they want to make sure they still are in a good ownership position. Um, so, I th- the answer is definitely no. We fully expect these businesses to raise some additional capital in the beginning to part to, to uh, afford uh, uh, the burn rate. So there's still loss making, but there's a second step of um, we've reached profitability, but we know the following three things really work in terms of marketing tactics. And we want to raise 15 or $20 million to really apply judiciously but kind of supercharge growth, which might look like we go negative. We start to lose money for a short period of time, but we'll catch back up and become profitable within, I don't know, a year, but not remain unprofitable. That we see happening with a portion of the portfolio too. That's that's also really helpful. Um, How how are you thinking about as well, you know, kind of the, the current state um, of the market when it comes to investing and maybe some of the changes compared to, you know, 2021. I know we've heard a lot on the, uh, on the tech side, it's kind of well reported, but we'd love to kind of hear it too uh, on the consumer brand side, how you think about valuations, multiples. um, And as well as like, where you kind of see, is it more of like an investor's market or, or an entrepreneur's market? Well, I think um, it's swung to more investor friendly. Mm -hmm. Um, for the marginal dollar, there will always be that cream of the crop group of businesses, brands, companies that have great metrics, great traction, great performance, raising capital for one of the couple of reasons we've talked about. Perhaps it's 
funding new, new launch and a couple of new retailers and they want to be sure they have the right kind of cash mix on the balance sheet for the inventory build and working capital investment or it's these incremental kind of marketing moves that they want to make and invest a little bit ahead of the revenue attributable from them. Um, they will continue to raise rounds at pretty good valuations. 2021, I feel, was peak as far as we've known it in the last five years. Um, I would say the consumer category is kind of still experiencing um, valuation disruption. <laughs> We're not, I think, all the way through it uh, because these companies that raised in the last 12 to 18 months are coming back to market still now and starting to experience what the new world order feels like. Um, valuations are generally down. Uh, you know, are they down 25, 50 something more percent? They're certainly not down as far as the tech sector, I believe, has fallen from what we understand in the public markets and maybe some more in the private markets with more kind of funds starting to report as we get into second quarter and third quarter. Um, but I also feel our tail on consumer and their performance, meaning the consumption habits, is less known right now because of the broader economic slowdown, the big feared R word coming around what our spending habits going to look like next year. The consumer's balance sheet has been pretty healthy this year. You know, yes, a portion driven partly by this kind of supplemental capital and things that the government was using during the, the heights of the pandemic. Um, and thankfully, consumers saved a lot of that and is now spending it. I mean, you look at anything in the hospitality industry from airlines to hotels to restaurants, those prices are crazy up. I've never seen them like that in my crazy. life. And I've lived through a couple oh of these gosh. cycles. I don't know when they'll come down because the demand is far outstripping the supply. But if you're going shopping and you see the inflation on a carton of eggs, milk, other kind of wheat-based uh, kind of commodities, prices are up. And people will start you know, likely substituting some brands for some private label or going next brand kind of premium down. So I think the lag that consumer is going to experience is a function of we don't know exactly how they are going to respond in their ultimate consumption habits over the next 12 to 14 months. Um, and that's what's causing consternation, I think, in the investment community. Yeah, no, that, I mean, those are excellent points um, about what's kind of currently happening um, in today's market. Um, um, when you think about prices and, and inflation and also just, I mean, hospitality, it's pretty, pretty unbelievable. Some of the, um, yeah. uh, uh, and luxury, luxury, you know, real kind of high end luxury will still be very, very fine. Um, it's a tiny part of the market, even though it's a lot of dollars that, um, are funneled that way. Um, but you know, we've got this strange or more unique intersection of raising prices associated with inflation and higher interest rates. And so that convergence, I think, is going to cause a different type of feeling recession, maybe, or economic slowdown than we've had in the past few, uh, whether it was 2008, 2009 with the global financial crisis or earlier in the kind of 2000s with the, the former dot-com kind of bus. So we'll see. Um, we'll see what happens. 
But I also think it's a great time to build a, a port. I mean, it's a great time to be an investor for the next 12 to 18 months. Um, and clearly that's where my bias lies. <laughs> and I'm going to be anxious to keep investing in more companies because we have a long-term view, you know, right. we're looking at companies that will exit in five to seven years. It's not, that's not going to be in the middle of an economic slowdown. So we're mindful of that and really want to build another strong portfolio. Yeah, no, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. Now it's, it's a great time to actually um, enter companies because yeah. you say like, you know, this is this, um, if the R word is coming, it's not going to last forever. Right. Um, and so um, how do you also, are there any types of trends uh, or um, yeah, trends? Are you it in consumer that you might actually be bearish on, or maybe it's a bit too, you know, niche that maybe you will not, you know, kind of, kind of be, um, reach kind of like the um, a large enough group, a, 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 a large enough audience where it actually doesn't make sense for you to actually invest. Oh, it's, it's a great, it's a good question. Um, one that we've been struggling with internally is um, what's going on in the alcohol industry, meaning the low alcohol, I, I don't have an issue with it all. The non-alcoholic category is a question for me. Um, now, I'm not the target demographic for those products, really. I'm too old, and I enjoy my spirits, my spirits in, obviously, moderation. But um, I'm all for healthier ways to take the edge off, if you will, Um I just don't know how much the, I feel uh, the fear of missing out factor on wanting to take part in celebrations where alcohol may be served and you don't want it for a variety of reasons, all personal. Um, and you choose to have a non-alcoholic wine or a non-alcoholic cocktail uh, versus something that can maybe take the edge off, but in a healthier way, because it's more of a functional ingredient. So maybe it's an adaptogen or something that's in a ready to drink type of product. I don't know. I feel like the jury's out. I do feel it's a bit more of a fad at the moment, but I felt somewhat similar about cold brew coffee in the beginning in like 2016. And it's proven to be a trend, not a fad. Uh, it will never catch up to the size of the overall hot kind of coffee category at all. But does that mean that the brands who want to continue capturing the next generation of consumer and have an op have a product offering for them will pay attention to it? Yes. And I do feel the same about, I think, the spirit and overall alcohol industry. Those large conglomerates can't leave a cat, you know, can't leave maybe a growing category of consumer behind. Um, I just don't know ultimately how big this category may end up representing. Um, so we've chosen not to pursue it quite yet. Again, what we've spent more time looking at are the more functional uh, ingredient types of beverages that can produce a similar effect, but it's a healthier, you know, it's likely a healthier outcome. 
I appreciate you walking us through how you got to, you know, if the goal is like take the edge off, how can we take the edge off kind of in a healthier way as opposed to not actually, there's kind of no, um, there's, you know, you actually aren't taking the edge off with like non out. There's no, um, uh, it's not actually changing your body um, in, right. in, in any kind of way. Um, so uh, I, I really appreciate you kind of walking us through um, why you might be unsure about, um, um, about non-alcoholic at, at this point in time. And if it will stay kind of still kind of a, a niche um, yeah. and people still maybe want like the taste um, of alcohol, but don't want the effects um, versus, you know, something else. So that's, um, that, that's really useful. Um, I mean, I put it kind of in the category. We, we think about the, the, we think about the brands that we invest in as either, and this isn't news, this isn't profound, but they are either category disruptors. So I think about that as like Bonza. Uh, our pasta right. business is a better for you pasta. Pasta categories, everybody knows what it is. Everybody knows how it works, et cetera. It's just a different ingredient formulation to it. So they don't have to do the work to educate the consumer about what their product does. Um, they just have to take share <laughs> from the big existing ones, the legacy brands. Versus something in that non-alcoholic space is much more of a category creator. So it was cold brew. It was educating the consumer about what exactly it is and here's the product. And we need, you know, you need almost two levels of marketing support to kind of achieve the same goal, to achieve the goal of scaling, which can be harder. But most of the time you do it because the payoff is greater, um, that you're creating something that's more unique and therefore will, and because there's, it's scarce in kind of supply, both the consumer as well as the ultimate acquirer of that company, that brand will want it more and therefore you'll pay for more for it. But that's what I think about with non-alc. And we've got examples of that in our portfolio too. Womanist is another one, you know, it's trying to create the new, this generation of Gen X women about destigmatizing menopause uh, and finding products that she'll want to use that are effective and help her kind of manage through some of those symptoms. No, that's, that's, um, that's great. I mean, I mean, it's really, I, I also like these kind of two layer of marketing, how, how it's one an opportunity if you can nail it, but at the same time, it's a lot harder to actually communicate that though with consumer, uh, with consumers or people. So, um, there's also kind of a barrier there as well. Yeah, there um, is. I think you've got to be cognizant of it and you've got to factor it into your capital needs. There's going to mm. be a bit more marketing required. Right, right. That's a great point. Um, my final question to you, what's one book that's inspired you personally and one book that's inspired you professionally? I just finished uh, um, on Amazon. Let me just get the, the title of it. It's uh, by a favorite author. No, this is a personal one. Um, it is, I think it's called, yeah, Carrie Soto is Back by Taylor Jenkins Reid. And it's a, a fun story about um, a woman who was a number one tennis player in the world and then retired. And she came back out of retirement to pursue just four Grand Slam tournaments to try to win one. Um, and it, there's a lot of kind of fun analogies around actual historical figures, I think, in tennis, men and women, um, that the author kind of alludes to. Uh, but I just thought the the whole storyline and the character development
Woman was a lot of fun to cut, was a lot of fun to read. Professionally, I love what I do, believe it or not, so much that when I take the time to kind of read up on things that are in my professional life, I often turn more to kind of newsletters mm -hmm. than I necessarily do to kind of books on how to lead or um, those topics that are, they're also important. But I, I find I get more out of like Forerunner's newsletter than um, going to a book to figure out kind of consumption behavior. So that's what I would say. I my for, for professionally, I love reading some of my great other consumer investors' new newsletters to get a thread on how they're thinking and what's fascinating them at the moment. Uh, and then for fun and kicks, I go way down into kind of the fiction zone, and I like thrillers, suspense novels. And then that particular book I just finished was really good. That's awesome. That's awesome. That's great. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> also, also love love newsletters. And this is. Um, no one's ever mentioned Carrie Soto is back, so we are excited to add oh, that good. to the news. Uh, you can list, start a book club, great. Mike, and you can have that as another exactly major use of your time, which you don't have. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, <laughs> no, it'd be great. It'd be great. Um, well, Sarah, Sarah, this has been so much fun. Thank you so much for your time. A pleasure, Mike. As, as I said before, I've been looking forward to doing this, and I truly admire and respect what you've been building, so I'm happy that I could play a little role. Oh, please. Th I'm so thrilled that we finally got to do this. Um, I know this has been, um, we've been chatting about it for such a long time. I know, too long. So, so thank you again. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure chatting with Sarah. I hope you all enjoyed it. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone. <laughs>